What does it mean to you when you walk through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum? Pride and emotion. If it's no them, there's no us. The Negro Leagues Baseball Museum established its Hall of Game in 2014. The Hall of Game honors former Major League greats who we believe played the game the way they played it in the Negro Leagues. So you played it with passion. You played it with high skill. And you also played it with a little flair, or as the kids would say, a little swag. You had to have some of that if you were going to play in the Negro Leagues. Or as my late friend, Hall of Famer, John Jordan Buck O'Neill would say, you couldn't go to the concession stand because you might miss something that you ain't never seen before. That was Negro Leagues baseball. Now, don't get it twisted. It doesn't mean that you weren't going to see great fundamentally sound baseball. But when you add tremendous fundamental with tremendous talent, you get something to talk about and you get entertainment at its finest. And those who played the game in that spirit and signature style of the Negro Leagues, well, those are folks who we want to honor. This year, we've dedicated the Hall of Game to members of the Black Aces. The late, great Mudcat Grant coined the term the Black Aces to recognize now 15 African-American pitchers to win 20 games or more in a Major League season. Yes, there's only been 15 in the history of Major League Baseball. Now, part of the reason was that the pitching position just simply did not transition from the Negro Leagues to the Major Leagues. I guess you could think of it in terms of the NFL and the black quarterback. There was this fundamental belief that we weren't smart enough to play that position. And then there was also an aspect that said, if we were going to play, we were going to play every day. So that idea of working every fourth, fifth day wasn't going to happen. So you just simply didn't get a lot of pitchers from the Negro Leagues who transitioned into Major League Baseball. There were so many great pitching stars in the Negro Leagues. As a matter of fact, we created a new exhibit called the Black Aces. And the Black Aces exhibit was done to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the legendary Leroy Satchel Page joining Cleveland in 1948 as a 42 or was he 52 year old rookie? Who knows? But in 1948, the old man joins Cleveland, helps them win the pennant, and then they would go on to win the World Series. Now, my Cleveland fans get tired of hearing me say this. It was the last time that Cleveland won the World Series, led by Satchel Paige and, of course, the great Larry Doby. And so we decided to take a retrospective look back at the history of the great African-American and Hispanic pitcher through a brand new exhibition called The Black Aces. And we give you a glimpse at some of the great pitching stars who had the doors open and the opportunity presented itself. They would have been perennial 20-game winners in any league, including the major leagues. That is the genesis for the group that we recognized at our Hall of Game induction ceremonies held at the Gym Theater on Saturday, September the 9th, 
So join me and my co-host, Greg Proops, as we celebrate Al Downing, Mike Norris, the late, great Vita Blue, Dwight Doc Gooden, and the D-trained Dontrell Willis as our most recent inductees into the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum's Hall of Game. Here's Greg Proops. Uh, thank you very much for having me here tonight. Uh, I don't know if anyone was here this morning when Bob uh, gave the tour of the Negro Leagues Museum, but he just finished a few minutes ago. <laughs> um, uh, it's my pleasure and my honor to be here tonight with so many fabulous uh, athletes and to honor these guys over the years. Um, uh, I've had such a great time doing it, and it means so much to me. And I'm very, very excited tonight, uh, as well as Al Downing uh, being here and, and uh, Doc Gooden, that uh, there's so many athletes from the Bay Area here tonight. Dave Stewart, we're honoring Mike Norris, and uh, Vita Blue, of course, and Derek Booth here tonight, and Dontrell Willis from Alameda. So uh, I'm from the Bay Area. I'm from San Carlos, uh, California, the whitest place on the face of the earth. <laughs> Home of the Plain Yogurt Festival. <laughs> Take the fruit out, the powerful taste is burning our tongues. Um, anyway, I wanna thank Bob for having me here, and um, I don't think Bob gets enough credit, quite frankly. How much has happened in the last few years with the Negro Leagues? You've brought them into the consciousness of America. There's been the ads on television, um, Buck O'Neill being inducted into the Hall of Fame, uh, uh, Bud Fowler, a great uh, Negro League player of years past, mm -hmm. Minnie Minoso, uh, all going in the Hall of Fame in the last few years. And of course, Buck O'Neill. And Buck O'Neill, yeah. Uh, yeah. the most special uh, member that's related to the Negro League Hall of Fame. It's been very exciting. And we're so thrilled that each year we seem to make another step closer to giving Negro Leagues a mainstream voice. Mm. And that was our goal from the onset when we started this museum. It's hard to believe that it's been 33 years since we started this museum in a little one-room office. And to see it now recognized as America's National Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And as I mentioned earlier, us on the cusp of building and international headquarters for this museum, building Buck a new house, which we are really excited about. And you can support the campaign. <laughs> the campaign is called Pitch for the Future. Uh -huh. Matter of fact, you can make a reoccurring donation for Pitch for the Future. Mm -hmm. You may uh, want to do that now, or he's <laughs> going to keep doing this all evening long. <laughs> And I don't know why Greg gives the impression that I talk a lot. Uh -huh, and that my tours are long and long-winded, probably because they are. No, and very informative, Bob. Uh, now I know the middle name of every player that played in the Negro League. So <laughs> another thing I think that was really important was getting Major League Baseball to recognize the Negro Leagues as a major league. It was tremendously significant, and for those of you who may remember, that was in 2020, December of 2020, when Major League Baseball, under the leadership of Commissioner Rob Manfred, did what we already knew. Now, we already knew that the Negro Leagues were a major league, but this was historical validation of the fact that this league was as major as any league. It would not take a back seat to any league the stars of the Negro Leagues would have been stars in any league had they been given the opportunity. But to have Major League Baseball do that formal validation has really helped elevate the consciousness of Negro Leagues Baseball with many Major League Baseball fans, and we're really excited about that as well. 
Oh no, it's all over baseball world. And uh, I would just like to get uh, a round of applause for Bob Kender for everything that he's done in getting the Negro Leagues recognized. Not just for baseball fans, but I think America's consciousness has, has been erased on it. Uh, and I think that's a, an amazing thing because it's such an important part of American history. Um, it is American history. It is American history. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and so oftentimes we talk about it from the standpoint, and I, and I say something that the late, great Buck O'Neill would oftentimes say when we talked about the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. It is so rare, folks, that we ever celebrate the people who built the bridge. More times than not, we celebrate the people who cross over the bridge. But at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, we celebrate the bridge builders. We celebrate those, as Buck would say, who built the bridge across the chasm of prejudice that allowed Al Downing to cross over, allowed Dontrell Willis to cross over, Vita Blue to cross over, Dave Stewart to cross over that bridge, Doc Gooden to cross over that bridge and pursue their dream of playing in the major leagues. And so, no, we should never forget those who built the bridge. And the Negro Leagues Museum is that tribute to those bridge builders. Absolutely. A living monument. Should we push on? Yeah, before I start preaching up no, here. No, you're not. You're already preaching. Uh, <laughs> let's get going with the awards program, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> we have so many superb uh, ball players here tonight. And uh, it's a very, very exciting for me uh, to introduce all of them, and also especially our first one. Um, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, as I said, and uh, the Giants, um, with Willie Mays and Willie McCovey and Gaylord Perry and Juan Marichal, uh, won the division in 1971. Uh, uh, and of course, were brutally beaten by the Pittsburgh Pirates. But uh, <laughs> this man was a gigantic star in 1971, and he won his 20 games here. Uh, one of the great black aces, the first black pitcher to pitch for the New York Yankees, ladies and gentlemen, and also led the American League in strikeouts. When he went to the National League, he had a 20-9 record and won Comeback Player of the Year. 17 years in the majors, nine with the Yankees, seven with the Dodgers, 123 wins, 1,600 strikeouts. Oh, yeah. A childhood idol, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the fabulous Al Downing. Gentleman Al Downing. Gentleman Al. Man, it's good to see you. It is so good to see you. So good to welcome you back to Kansas City. Mr. Downing has never been a stranger to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. He's been several times, and I get to hang out with him typically up in Binghamton, New York, in the late, great Jim Mutcat Grant's annual golf tournament. And uh, while, I'm while I'm thinking about this, we would be remiss if we did not remember Jim Mutcat Grant, mm. who on this stage a few years ago entertained us tremendously yeah. with song. He gave us some blues. He is the mastermind behind the book, The Black Aces, celebrating those 15 African-American pitchers to win 20 games or more in a major league season. Al, you were one of those 20 game winners and it's just great to have you back in Kansas City. It's great to be back here in Kansas City. I first came here in 1961 with the Yankees, but the years I improved and enjoyed the most was when I was pitching on the mound against the old A's before they left. 
and they had the young players out there, and uh, Mr. Finley owned the ball club, and they had a great fandom, and every time I pitched, the uh, right field stands would be crowded. And you know who sat in the right field stands. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like joining the Yankees? Because you joined a legendary Yankees club, you know, with Mantle and Maris and everybody on it. It's like a little kid going to Harvard. Mm. You know, I was 20 years old, just turned 20, uh, didn't know up from down. And someone asked me, well, what do you think? I said, I don't. Because <laughs> these guys have been in 10, 11 World Series. Am I going to make some decisions yeah. for somebody? But I was very fortunate to have two great mentors, Elston Howard, who played here, and Hector Lopez, Lopez, who also played here. And they showed me the right way to go. And they said, boy, you follow us, you'll be okay. And of course, Ellie every morning wanted to go to the produce stand. And one day he said to me, Al, you know, you can buy some grapes and some nectarines if you want. You don't have to all eat all mine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned Elston Howard. And for those of you who don't know, Elston Howard's career began here playing for Buck O'Neill and the Kansas City Monarchs. Now, I don't know if he ever mentioned that when he was playing for the Monarchs, his roommate was Ernie Banks. Is there? Ernie Banks was Elston Howard's roommate. Now, think about that. Elston Howard and Ernie Banks, both members of the great Kansas City Monarchs. And Ernie would say that every night, because now there was no doubt about the fact that these players from the Negro Leagues would have an opportunity now to cross over and get into the major leagues. So this was no pipe dream. And Ernie said they would sit up every night and, and, and dream out loud about which one of them would get to the majors first. And of course, Ernie beats his, his former roommate, you know, by a few years, but then the Yankees make Elston the first black Yankee, and Elston Howard would go on to become the American League's first African-American MVP. He was your catcher. What it was like, what was it like to be throwing to your battery mate, Elston Howard? Well, I grew up as a headstrong kid. And uh, when I pitched uh, as a young kid, I wanted to believe I was always in control. But I had heard so much about Elston Howard before I came to the Yankees. And when I came to the Yankees, one day he said to me, uh, Al, why don't, uh, why don't you ever shake me off? I said, why should I shake you off? You've been here three times as long as I've been here. I'm learning from the master. But his wife will tell you, I ate at their house two or three times a week. <laughs> so he really took you under his wing? Without a doubt, without a doubt. And uh, wherever I went, the thing that impressed me the most, we go to like Detroit, Cleveland, Chicago, uh, cities in which you can walk. And we loved to walk around the cities after we ate breakfast. And the thing that impressed me is the rapport and the respect he got from the merchants there. Ellie was a second to just Bob as a dresser. I mean, you know. <laughs> In fact, Jerry Kenny, one of our infielders, once said about Elston Howard, why is it every shirt you buy blue? <laughs> but he would go and he would walk into the store and the, the merchants say, Ellie, it's nice to see you again. You haven't been here since last year. Who is this young guy you have here? And he'd always introduce me like I was a star, and it made me feel good. Yeah. You know, and I find it interesting, obviously, the success that you had over with the Yankees, and then you move over to the Dodgers, and you almost reinvent yourself because that's when you really have your breakout season that moved you into the echelon as a member of the Black Aces. What do you remember about that 20-game season that year that you were there with the Dodgers? Well, one of the things that uh, most people didn't realize at the time, we didn't have the media coverage 
And I had hurt my arm in 57, 67. I no longer had that Vita Blue fastball. Mm -hmm. My fastball was kind of creeping along about 85. <laughs> and uh, the Dodgers took a chance on me. And I got an opportunity to pitch. And I had some wonderful mentors on that team. Dick Allen, really Willie Davis, uh, Jim Gilliam was our first base coach. And of course, Maury Wills was a shortstop. And whenever I would seem like I'm getting a little fast out there in the mound, Maury was like the manager. He'd come on the mound, he'd sit out, slow down. Just slow down. And Dick was playing third base when we played the Pittsburgh Pirates. Pittsburgh had some mashes in those days, like you said, they mashed the Giants. He would say, now, take some of the sting out of that fastball. <laughs> and what was your, what what your go-to pitch? My fastball always. Most reliable pitch in baseball. If you say, I want you to go there, it goes there. Sometimes you tell that curveball where to go, it won't listen to you. Sounds like, and then you, you, then you get whiplash. That, 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 that sounds like that hook that I have in golf. Yeah, someone once said, the slice will listen, that hook don't hear you. Yeah, I know, I totally understand. Now you pitched an immaculate inning, which is, uh, you know, three up, three down, nine pitches, all strikes. And it's so rare in the game. What was going through your head when you were able to do that that day? Well, you just think about striking out the next batter. Um, my brother and I played, we had a big yard in our house. We lived in my grandparents' house. And we could play ball against the back fence. But you couldn't hit the ball over the garage. You hit it over the garage as a home run. Of course, we were like 10, 11 years old. <laughs> so the idea was to strike the other player out. We didn't have any distances from the mound to home plate. And you learn how to strike people out. So well, what I want to do, strike him out. Don't let him hit. And one day I'm playing Babe Ruth, and I hadn't gotten a chance to pitch the first couple of days in the tournament. And my shortstop and, second, and the third baseman came up to me and said, Al, you can let him hit the ball, can't you? I said, no. <laughs> I don't trust you guys. <laughs> now, I, I had a chance to walk the guys through the museum today, and we get to photograph... And it's my favorite photograph in the entire exhibition is a photograph of an 18-year-old Henry Aaron standing at the train station in Mobile, Alabama. He's this frail kid. He looks afraid, about to leave home for the very first time, likely to go join a team in the Negro Leagues called the Indianapolis Clowns. And so Mr. Aaron, as I mentioned, was cross-handed. So in this case, he was a right-hand hitter who was hitting with his left hand on top. Well, everyone, I think, in the room knows that you gave up the famous home run to Henry Aaron. And I told the story this morning that when that home run happened in Atlanta's Fulton County Stadium, I was almost 12 years old. And I'm in my parents' living room in Crawfordville, Georgia. And as my childhood idol, Henry Aaron, was circling the bases in Atlanta's Fulton County Stadium, I was circling the bases in my mother's living room. And so her couch was first base, the old TV was second base, the other old couch was third base, and her recliner was home plate. And as my childhood idol was touching them all, I was touching them all too. What do you remember about that night in Atlanta's Fulton County Stadium? Because I, I'm sure it wasn't lost on you what Henry was going through, number one, and the fact that this could be that milestone moment. Well, that previous weekend, we opened the season in San Diego. Remember that when they had the expansion, they didn't want to put all the new teams in the same division, so they put Cincinnati and Atlanta in the Western Division. Mm -hmm. So we opened the season in San Diego, 
And uh, you remember Dave Winfield was on that team, Stretch McCovey was on that team, Nate Colbert, Cito Gaston. And I'm running in the outfield, and they're out standing in the outfield, watch me. And they say, I'll come over here. They saving you for the hammer, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm going to the gallows. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we got to the ballpark on Monday night, the Braves had a very talented ball club. Ralph Gard, oh, Dusty yeah. Baker, mm. Mike Lum was on that team, Marty Perez, of course, in the hammer. And, uh, and they could hit. And they had good pitching, but they were in the division with the big machine, red machine, and us. And we had both, both oh, I, we had great pitching, probably the best in our division. I thought Pittsburgh was the best in the Eastern Division. But that night, what I remembered, we had about three bands in the, in the bullpen, so I couldn't warm up in the bullpen. I had to warm up in front of the stands, which I hated, because then the fans could see what kind of stuff you had. <laughs> and and then, then it rained off and on that sure night. Did. It rained off and on. In fact, Henry hit the home run in the fourth inning, and the fourth inning didn't end until after 11 o'clock at night. So late that they told me I could go home and come back tomorrow for the press conference. <laughs> but they also had told me that they, I should have sensed what was going on. They had me set up because they said, now, when he hits the home run, not if he hits home run. <laughs> really? <laughs> when, he hits, when? <laughs> when he hits the home run. <laughs> wait till he crosses home run, then home plate. Then go sit down in the dugout and wait till the ceremony's in. If you remember, Pearl Bailey was yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, Sammy Davis Jr. was here. Oh, that wasn't going to end anytime soon. <laughs> it was maybe another half hour, 40 minutes later. I'm just sitting down there easing it, taking it easy, you know. They say, oh, you can go back on the mound now. I never got through the fourth inning. <laughs> I was working overtime. <laughs> Did they use special balls uh, to make sure that, uh, you know, that they knew which one was uh, the home run ball for him? Yes, they had a special indelible ink on them. At least they said they did. Indelible Didn't ink. make any difference for Hank. <laughs> <laughs> what difference did it make for Hank? Hank right. was going to hammer, he's going to hammer it. Right. You know? <laughs> but, uh, and he never hit long home runs. They were always line drives. Yeah. Looked like they were just clearing the fence, but they got over there. So I, I thought that was unfair because I had to get used to those, old, those new balls. I wasn't accustomed to that, you know? <laughs> that is absolutely fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, our Hall of Game inductee. Can I say one thing before we go? Yeah, yeah no, please say all you like. You know, we talk about Henry, and we talk about Willie. The first game I pitched in Yankee Stadium in 1961, I had started a game in Washington, which I got knocked out in the first inning. I thought they were going to send me back to the minors. They said, no, you're going to stay with us. We're going to play the Giants who were coming back from the, for the first time since they had left New York. And uh, so we were going to play what's called a Mayor's Trophies game. And so I'm going to pitch that game. And they had Cepeda, they had McCovey, you know, they had Philippe Alou, you know. Hey, I, I, I'm in trouble. <laughs> and Willie. And so I'm out there pitching. And I pitched five pretty good innings. And uh, I remember a couple weeks later, all my buddies and I, we'd gone to high school together. And they said, man, you know, we like you, but, but when you face Willie, man, we were rooting for Willie out there. And that, that night, <laughs> I said, no good guys. <laughs> I tell you what, but you more than held your own in a tremendous career. We are so proud of what not only you have accomplished on the field, but the things that you have done off the field. You are indeed a true gentleman. Y'all give it up for gentleman Al Downing. Thank you. And his induction into the Hall of Game.
wish we had an hour with everybody. Oh, I wish so too. I I, I do because he was just getting warmed up. Oh, I know. Yeah, he was right? just getting warmed up. Oh my goodness. Um, our next picture uh, is uh, one that was born in, uh, and raised in San Francisco, California, in the Fillmore District, and he pitched for the Oakland Athletics his whole career. He's the only. Um, pitcher on the A's to win a game in three different decades. Uh, he was a superb pitcher and made it to the cover of Sports Illustrated with the staff that year um, in 1980, uh, 1980, excuse me. He had 24, a 22 and nine record with 24 complete games that year and was a gold glove winner as well. Not only that, after his time in baseball, he's gone on to have a massive effect on the Bay Area um, community, um, helping youth there. Um, he wasn't able to join us here tonight because of um, he's indisposed, but we have someone else who's equally um, awesome, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, a, a man uh, from Oakland, California, who also pitched for the athletics, who was one of the dominant uh, pitchers of his era, four-time 20-game winner, uh, World Series winner. There's really not enough to say about Dave Smoke Stewart, ladies and gentlemen. You come on up here and talk about Mike Norris. Stu. Hey. Man, it, it, it's so good to see you as well, and thank you for coming in to pinch hit for your former teammate and friend, Mike Norris. Uh, when I called Mike to let him know that we wanted to induct him into the Hall of Game, he was so excited. So I know that this hurts him tremendously, that unfortunately his body just would not allow him to travel to be here to accept the honor. But I'm thrilled that you could come here and represent for him. It's Number one, it's always great to see you. And, and Dave, as some of you know, was a 2019 inductee into the Hall of Game. And the winner of the 2017 Jackie Robinson. Award. And the winner of the 2017 <laughs> Jackie you. Robinson Legacy Award. Thank you. Yeah, so thank you for being back here oh, in Kansas City. It's, it's, it's always good to be back. Um, for those of you that, that don't know Mike, um, Michael has for years gone through different physical um, things uh, with his body. Um, he uh, uses a walker and a wheelchair and so uh, traveling around and getting around is difficult for him these days. And I know he was excited about being here. Um, and I'm excited to represent him in, in, in um, receiving his award. Yeah. It's one of my favorite topics. You talked about how influential Mike was for you as a young pitcher coming into the major leagues. Yes. Tell us about that influence? Oh, shoot. We, we had a group of, of guys that uh, were out of the Bay Area um, that turned out to be very good major league players. There was Al Woods, uh, Rupert Jones, Glenn Burke, uh, Marvin Webb, Harold Thomason, um, Michael Norris worked out with us, Tack Wilson, Lloyd Mosby. I can keep saying name after name after name, but... Um, we got together daily. Um, Rupert and Glenn were the, were the, the leaders, and um, our meeting place was Cal Berkeley. And uh, so we would go to Cal Berkeley um, Mondays through Fridays, and we'd start getting our workouts in uh, preseason. 
Um, I was 18, 19 years old at that time, and Mike Norris found out that I was a pitcher. Um, my first real instruction, um, and I, Al and I were talking about this, I call Al Ace, um, when we were Dodgers together, Al was the only black pitcher in the big leagues for the Dodgers. I mean, there were a few in the big leagues. I was the only black pitcher in the minor leagues um, at that time. And um, so um, Ace was very, very helpful to me and um, helped with my growth. But Sandy Koufax um, was, was, a, was a factor for me at that time too. And then coming along and, and moving along, Mike Norris, when he found out that I was a pitcher, um, really took a liking to me and put me under his wing and, and started talking to me about different things, would call me during the course of the year. He's a big leaguer, you know, doing things at the big league level, but calling me in the minor leagues and, you know, asking me if I'm doing X, Y, and Z. Man, are you making sure, man, you, that leg's got to get to the height of your, it's got to get to the height of your ballast point. When you get to the height of your ballast point, your arm should be in position to throw it. And that's when you start going forward. You can't go forward until you get to this. And he was technical like that. So, um, and he was helpful to me. In the 82 season, I was struggling um, as a reliever um, with the Dodgers. And, and um, Mike called me and he says, uh, man, do you, do you throw a two-seamer? I said, no, man, I don't throw a two-seamer. I said, what is that? And he says, you know, it's a sinker. It's a ball that's sinking fastball. And I said in a joking manner, because Mike used to have the wet look and used to, <laughs> used to wet the ball up. And I said, what the, what, the, what the hell do you know about throwing a sinker? <laughs> you throw some, you throw some, some wet stuff up there. He said, no, it's a two-seamer, Steve. Seriously, he said, take me seriously. Like Dusty used to tell me, he said, shut up and just listen. <laughs> so so um, he, um, he told me the next chance he got, he would physically show me, he said, but look in this book, and he said, you'll see what a two-seam fastball. And he said, it should change your year around if you learn how to throw this. And he said, ask him about it. He said, you got Don Sutton's on your team. He said, nothing else, man. Tell Sutton, tell Sutton to tell you how to throw that goddamn sandpaper ball that he threw. You talk about <laughs> me throwing with wet stuff. He said, he got sandpaper. So, uh, <laughs> so I, uh, I, I got a chance to talk with Sutton about it. And, um, and he eventually came up with a, with a two-seamer that he suggested. So he was, he was like a big brother, man. He was a, a, always in my ear. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this might seem odd, but did you guys not share a pitching coach named, and I might get his name wrong, Bill Posadel? Me and Mike? No, not, uh, when he was a pitching coach on the athletics. Uh, okay. No, I didn't have that guy. All right. I'll be here all <laughs> night, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Uh, so Mike and you pitched uh, at the same time, but in different leagues, right? Until yes. uh, until you went over to the, Texas, I guess, or yeah. athletics. Yeah, I did. He also pitched for a legendary minor league team. That what was it? The '86 San Jose Bees. Yeah, that was pretty wild. Yeah, they were like almost like a barnstorming team. Yeah. Uh, oh, so kind of like the Savannah, Savannah Bananas, kind of? <laughs> kind of, but not that bad. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a bunch of guys that got together, and, and um, you know, they were showing their talents and, and displaying their talents and, and hoping, you know, to get back to the big leagues is yeah. what it was. If, if you were scouting 
Mike Norris. What kind of pitcher was he? Um, you know, Ace said this best. Mike Norris, I mean, you can talk about, you know, all of the, the other stuff. You can talk about his breaking ball. He had a tremendous change up. He threw a screwball. Um, but when Michael Norris needed to go to something and he knew he needed to throw a strike, he could throw his fastball anywhere he wanted to. Um, I remember when, I, when, when we first met each other and we were sitting down, we were talking, and he said, he said, man, fastball is the number one pitch. And he said, and he told me, he said, look, he said, he said, you see that fly up in the corner of the room? And I'm looking. And I said, he said, you see it? And I still don't see it. But if you keep asking me eventually, I said, yeah. <laughs> and he said, man, I throw my fastball anywhere I want to. He said, the hair on that fly's ass, I could hit it with my fastball. <laughs> Mike had a little satchel page oh, in him, I that's see. that's Michael, man. You got to know him, man. He was confident with his stuff. Um, and um, just he was just really, really good. You know, people, you don't know. I mean, when Ricky Henderson first came to the big leagues, he and Ricky were roommates um, and actually taught Ricky the do's and the don'ts of becoming a major leaguer and, and acting like a major leaguer and carrying himself as a major leaguer. And they were thick as thieves at that time. So... Michael's had some great influence on, yeah. like I said, a lot of people, probably more people than we even know. Yeah, no, and, and Greg mentioned it, the work that he's doing there in the Bay Area, again, working with a lot of young people, his laugh. Yeah. He just has an incredible laugh, the joy <laughs> in his laugh. Uh, I, I can hear him in my head now because he would come out to Mudcats Golf Tournament as well. And he would be in his wheelchair participating in the golf tournament, mm -hmm. though. You know, and he was so proud of being a member of the Black Aces. You are a member of the Black Aces. What, do you mean, what does that mean for you and the other guys that you've known who have been in this kind of rare fraternity? You know, when I became a Dodger, I had a chance to um, spend time with Don Newcomb, uh, which was the beginning of my process of understanding what my responsibility was um, as, a, as, a, as a black pitcher in the major leagues. Um, when I was a kid, though, Bob Gibson was my guy. That was the guy I looked at. That was the guy I wanted to be like. And, and when I had a chance to meet him, I was like, it was, it was a different day, you know, to sit in the car and talk with him and talk about his philosophies and what he did. And I got a Bob Gibson story, and then I'll get back to it. So I make the All-Star team, and, and, and Bob calls me. He says, congratulations, you make the All-Star. I said, man, I'm happy. He says, let me tell you something. When you get in that clubhouse, find a spot and don't make no friends. You don't talk to nobody. <laughs> And I said, what you mean? He says, don't talk to nobody. He says, because when these guys get to know you, you're giving away something. I said, all right, I'm, I'm going to do that. So I get in the clubhouse, and I'm sitting in the middle of two dang hitters. And I say, hey, man, can you put me someplace else? This is in Anaheim. I said, can you put me someplace else? I don't care where you sit me, but I can't sit amongst hitters. And they moved my locker, so then guys were coming over. They wanted to shake my hand, and I'd shake the hand. And I'd half look at them, give them, give them the dead fish. And, 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 uh, and, and I'm sitting there. And, and so I'm on the team with Carney Lansford, makes the All-Star that year, Conseco, McGuire, Terry Steinbach. And all these cats keep coming to shake my hand. And 
So finally, they said, man, well, what, what the hell wrong with Stu? And uh, Stunny said, what you mean? They said, man, he don't talk to nobody, man. And, and uh, he don't smile, he don't do nothing. Is he always like that? He said, well, Stunny said, well, I mean, he'd like that on the days he pitched. He said, but never saw him. So Stiney asked me, he said, man, why are you, why you acting like this? I said, man, Bob Gibson told me, man, don't talk to none of them. He said, because <laughs> a couple of days, I'm going to be facing these guys. So he said, don't talk to them. I ain't talking to them. <laughs> and that's what I did on the All-Star. On, on the All-Star, I, I just didn't talk to guys. But um, to explain what it means to me, um, I don't know that there are words for that. Um, you know, Bob Gibson, Don Newcomb, you know, later on I got a chance to meet Fergie Jenkins. Um, I was sitting in the dugout, I was watching J.R. Richard pitch against us, and I was looking at a lot of guys that when J.R. is, who's pitching tomorrow? Oh, J.R.'s pitching. Oh man, my back is hurting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I got a backache, man, oh. You know, and, 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 and so, you know, I was surrounded by guys that, you know, I either wanted to be like, and then after I found out the depth of what they did in the sport, um, the truth is, you know, the, the one thing that I carry in the sport and it's, I mean, the Roberto Clemente Award is probably my proudest award, um, and, uh, but the 421 seasons in a row, mm -hmm. those things happen because I wanted to be like Bob Gibson and I wanted to be like Fergie Jenkins. And if you watch the monuments that are in, in, the, in, the, in the museum, you'll see Fergie won 27 years in a row. In a row. And man, I had won four in a row. And after the end of the fourth one, I was saying, guys said, well, what you gonna do? I never based it on wins. I always based it on innings. And I kept saying, man, I wanna pitch 300 innings. I wanna pitch 300. And if I pitched 300, then I knew I was gonna win my fair share of games. And so those guys made an impression on me. Um, and Mudcat made an impression on me. And when you look at the lack of black pitchers, starting pitchers in the major leagues, all through my career and the history before me, to win 20 games and to be a part of that fraternity, to be a part of that group, to have my brothers, and they're all sitting here right now tonight, you, 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 you can't replace that. You, you can't, there's 15 in the history of Major League Baseball, 15. Mm -hmm. I mean, that says it in itself. It means everything to me, and I, I, I am proud to represent that fraternity. And, you know, Dontrell and CeCe, those guys have, have given me props that I probably don't deserve, but I appreciate when I hear them say that they looked up to me. Yeah. And so that meant I did my job. Yeah. And there's people that are saying well, that Dontrell is their guy yeah. and CeCe was their guy. Well, we, we talked about it before we started the show today. There is a fraternity, so to speak, amongst yeah. those players. You did what Mike Norris yes. did for you. Yeah. And now Don Trail, you did for Don Trail yep. what Mike Norris had done right. for you. Don Trail is doing what you did for him. Yep. And that cycle kind of continues. And that's the way it was in yep. the Negro Leagues. Yep. You know, I, I had the opportunity to walk Henry Aaron through the museum, as I mentioned earlier. And he talked about how the older Negro League player essentially did everything they could 
to shield him from the harshness of Jim Crow. And a lot of people thought that the older player was jealous of that young budding star, the young Willie Mays, the young Henry Aaron, Ernie Banks, who was going to get an opportunity. They were not jealous. They saw themselves in them. Mm -hmm. And they wanted them to be successful. And the thing that I admired about Mr. Aaron and Mr. Mays and Ernie, Monty Irvin, those guys who did get the opportunity to leave the Negro Leagues in transition, they never forgot those players from mm -hmm. the Negro Leagues. So what you're talking about is the extension of the Negro Leagues and this brotherhood amongst those black players who even when they were on opposing teams, they would reach out to one another and take each other to dinner mm -hmm. and those kinds of things. And that legacy kind of continues now. Yeah, and we need to make sure that that continues amongst that very few, but I'm still hopeful that we'll see more. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's, that's really what it comes down to. And, you know, you've got, like I said, we've got this group of people here. We've got Doc Gooden and we've got Don Trill and Al and Vida and, and I mean, it's just, there's nothing that you can, there's no words that, that can express when I watch Dontrell pitch and when I watch CC, those guys pitching, when I was watching Doc pitch, the amount of pride that I felt just knowing that there was somebody else out there who looked like me that could be dominant in a game that wasn't meant for us, that they didn't want to let us in, that they kept us out of. There's, there's no amount of pride that I can express and gratitude that I can express to those guys. I'm sorry. I'm getting emotional I, here. I get it. I but understand. It was unbelievable to watch them do what they did in the way that they did it because it kept doors open for us. Absolutely. And Bob, what you are doing here at this museum and what you've done for this game, what you've done for the Negro League players, um, All I can do, man, is take my hat off to you and praise you in the highest regard with the most esteem. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all give it up for Dave Smoke Stewart. And of course, please welcome Mike Norris into the Hall of Game. Speaking of black aces from Oakland, um, the next one is one of the most electrifying pitchers that ever walked on a major league field. Uh, from Mansfield, Louisiana, exploded into the major leagues with an insane rookie season that he also was Cy Young and most valuable player. Uh, played on many World Series teams, led the league in strikeouts, um, was traded to the San Francisco Giants for seven players. I think the only time in Major League history one player was traded for an entire team. Uh, there it is. Uh, he led the 78 Giants, and we were called the Little Orange Skateboard. Uh, he was also an outspoken advocate, um, both for himself and for civil rights. Vita Blue, um, sadly, has uh, swirled on into the heavens, but we have his son, with us here tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, let's bring up Derek Blue, Blue 2.
What's up, Mr. Blue? How you doing? Man, I, I, I'm so good. I am so delighted, and I know all of us here at the Negro Leagues Museum, just absolutely delighted that you could come and represent your father and your family. I was telling a story earlier today. Your father passed on May 6th of this year. May 6th is the anniversary of Jackie Robinson's first game mm. with the Kansas City Monarchs. And we were having our second annual March of the Monarchs. We were doing a youth clinic with our friends and partner over at Bank of America when I got the sad news that your father had passed. And unfortunately, I did not get the opportunity to formally say goodbye or to recognize, let him know what we were planning to do for him. But to have you here to represent your dad and your family is very meaningful to all of us. So thank you for coming out to Kansas City. Thank you for having me. It's been uh, just a, uh, the, the emotions on the, ro the roller coaster of emotions. When I walked into the museum this morning and you know, I've had a relationship with Don Trell since he was about 15. Uh, Dwight Gooden was my man, you know, when I was in high school. You know, Mike Norris. Um, so it was just this big connection. And also, I, you know, Al Dowling. So it was just this big connection. But when I walked into the museum, man, it was overwhelming. But this is a good feeling. And it's just been, uh, you know, the last 24 hours, just like I was excited. And I think I told you before, my expectations were really high, but you guys have exceeded it. And I'm just very proud to be uh, here to represent my father. Thank you. Let's talk about uh, what, what he would tell you about his baseball career. I mean, you know, you were probably a little kid, and then uh, his first few seasons in the major leagues were, what do they say, you know, written with lightning. <laughs> you know, uh, I, um, Mr. Gentleman Al Downing was telling us today, when you walked into the ballpark, and I remember this, because I remember the Time Magazine cover that Vita Blue was on, um, you could hear the ball pop all over the ballpark. Um, so what, what did he tell you about those early days when he was first in the bigs? Well, first of all, thank you for you know, those kind words and Mr. Dowling, but he just said, hey man, I had to go to work. Mm. You know, had to go to work. And I think a little bit of it was, you know, if you guys know anything about Charlie Finley, the way he treated the players, there was this kind of, uh, hey, us against Charlie. And it, the sex they had was for each other. But he always said, I gotta go to work, I gotta do my best, I've gotta pitch nine innings. And he did that, and I, just telling someone the story earlier tonight, I think he was pitching, uh, pitched 11 innings, and they take him out. My mom looks at me and says, we gotta go. Mm. Because this man, you just took him out after he pitched 11 innings, and I think I looked it up later, like 126, 127 pitches. He did not care. His job was to complete the game. Yeah. And that was for his teammates. So when he said I'd go to work, he was going to work for his teammates, city of Oakland, and representing Mansfield, Louisiana. Yeah, no, that's, that's, the, that's the Vita Blue, and we had him out. He came out several times to play in the Buck O'Neill Golf Classic, and we always had a great time with him. Number one, he had one of the great names in baseball. I mean, Vita Blue. There was just something very cool about that name. When did you realize how great a pitcher your dad was? 
was probably about fourth or fifth grade, and um, we were in New York, and the media just swarmed to him. And I'm like, I thought we were gonna go play catch before the game. <laughs> you know, but it was uh, the media frenzy that is New York, which sometimes can be overhyped, but it's kind of the first time I stood back and, all right, this guy is, he's okay. He's okay. <laughs> but, I, you know, as I got older, I really got to understand it and um, the hard work that he put in. And, you know, we would, we would talk about some of the stories of things that happened to him, even in the mid-60s as a black player. Um, he played for Iowa, uh, the oh, 80s yes. farm, farm club, and there were some problems. Um, oh, absolutely. I know a story where his teammates... His white teammates actually went to jail one night because of him, and something happened in the restaurant. And so even in the mid-60s, the civil rights was starting, but it still was going on. So he would talk about those things, you know, the struggles that he faced and always told me, you know, I'm doing this so you have a better, better future. And for other uh, black and brown boys and girls to have a better future. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember when he was <clears throat> going to pitch in the All-Star game, in 1971, and Doc Ellis was the um, number one pitcher in the National League that year. Again, everything, this, this whole evening is, seems to <laughs> be hanging off of 1971. And um, he went to the newspapers and said, and I remember quite well, they'll never have um, Doc Ellis pitch against me because they won't have two black pitchers start an all-star game. And it was so true and so scandalous um, that MLB kind of knuckled under, and they did have Doc Ellis start. And I think it is the first time mm-hmm. two black pitchers faced each other. He was so outspoken about all those things and so honest. And it was so refreshing and fantastic. And there's a, a huge change of the guard from the 60s into the 70s and the attitude of players. Um, what, what, did he imbue that into you? I can't help but think of that, being raised by him and around him, there was an element of that um, spirit all the time. I mean, I think a lot of it for him was he grew up in the South. Mm. So he, uh, I know it's going to be surprising, he was actually a better football player. Um, And he was recruited by over 100 colleges, but every single college, well, you're not going to be a quarterback. Mm. And this is a man who threw 35 touchdown passes his senior year. And so how are you going to tell him you're not, we're going to recruit you, but you're not good enough to be a quarterback. And so I think that impacted him. And that's where he became kind of outspoken and uh, just tried to, to get this message across. Because you and I were talking about today, I'll, mm. sorry, John, no, no, but no, no, no. How, how many great ball players, black ball players, were also unbelievably great quarterbacks? Willie Mays was a star quarterback yeah. in the 30s. I mean, in the 40s, and uh, they, they just wouldn't, weren't going to let them in. And so they all became uh, baseball players. Jackie, yeah. for goodness sakes, was a running back. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Warren Moon got sent to Canada. Got exiled yeah. to Canada. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, so my dad, that, I think that was a big part of him, you know, seeing what happened to these great athletes who just weren't given that opportunity. And he got the opportunity, and he got the message across, whether MLB or whoever liked it or not, he got his message across, and very subtly, um, you know, and it was a slow change, but even before he passed, uh, we still talked about the lack of diversity as far as uh, black players in the game. We're still talking about that. And and it's really interesting that you talked about some of those 
trials and tribulations that he encountered. We're still now, we're talking about in the 1960s, moving in to the 1970s, not 1947, when Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. And that was part of the reason that we created the exhibit Barrier Breakers, because I think a lot of people think that things got easier for black ball players after Jackie Robinson breaks in. But those were challenges that were readily part of the game deep into the 1970s. And for your dad to have grown up in the South, had been a part of seeing and experiencing life in the Deep South, Jim Crow in particular, you know, I had, I could, I could only imagine that, you know, to be, to have a defiant spirit. That well, was pretty, that was pretty impressive. Yeah. Well, one of the things was Charlie Friendly, uh, if you know anything about Charlie Friendly, he didn't pay his teams and they, they won three straight World Series, five straight divisions, and they were not being paid what they should have been. So he would do little things. If you grow a mustache, I'll pay you a hundred bucks. And you do this, you do that. So he tells my dad, to change his name to True Blue. Didn't go over well. My dad's, my grandfather was Vida. So my dad's a junior, and he was very proud of that. And I mean, he told Charlie to go, you know, <laughs> F himself. And so that was kind of the start of it. You know, you're just going to change my name yeah. that my family has yeah. because you want to give me $100? It's really interesting that you said that because the story of a guy, a great ball player named John Wesley Donaldson, who should be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame, over 400 verifiable wins and all these amazing feats. Well, he was being scouted by a number of white major league teams who wanted him to pass himself off, to go to Cuba and pass himself off as being Cuban so that they could then bring him into the major leagues. And Donaldson, who was a very proud man, essentially said, I will not defy who I am and who my mother is, and turn down that opportunity. You know, and here we are now in the 60s and 70s, and Charlie Finley was essentially doing the same thing that they had tried to do to John Wesley Donaldson years prior to that. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, Vida Blue was uh, uh, one of my favorite pictures in it. Yeah, you know, I think that there's the, the struggle constantly goes on uh, to uh, illuminate, you know, how the excellent black pictures are and that it's really about changing people's minds to get them to accept. Um, you know, I've run into an inarticulate wall here in so much as I just feel like sometimes the giant powers that be and, and the racism therein is so insurmountable. And part of what's so moving about tonight and every time I've been here is that every single player talks about how much the Negro Leagues meant to them. Every single player talks about the generations that went before them. And it's just astonishingly moving and fantastic. Yeah. And I think Vida Blue is one of those kind of players that people, I remember, people loved Vida Blue. And they love Vida Blue. Yeah. Blue magic. Blue yeah. magic. Blue magic. And we certainly love Vida here in Kansas City. He had ties to our great city. Mm. And I am absolutely thrilled. I wish he could have been here physically with us. But I know spiritually, he hanging out with Buck and Satchel, and all those other guys who are celebrating him for becoming a 2023 inductee into the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum's Hall of Game. 
Congratulations, Vida, Derek. Thank you for sharing in this moment with us. We are thrilled to have you here in Kansas City. It's been an amazing day. Thank you for everything. And I, like I said, I can't wait to come back to the museum. This was amazing. A uh, couple days here, so thank you so much to you and your staff. Y'all give it up Derek for Derek Blue. Blue too. Congratulations, Vita Blue. This summer, celebrate the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum's Pitch for the Future. With your donation, you can help bring Buck O'Neill's vision to life with the construction of the Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center, as well as the brand new Negro Leagues Baseball Museum on the historic site of the Paseo YMCA in Kansas City, where the Negro National League was founded in 1920. We're building the nation's only Negro Leagues campus, an international hub for Negro Leagues and social history. Yes, a transformative complex so that future generations will be inspired by those who dared to dream. To donate, visit nlbm.com slash pitch for the future. Another one of our Hall of Game members, a rookie sensation with uh, the World Championship Florida Marlins in 2003. Unbelievable, irrepressible, the high leg kick. A world championship in his first season. Um, the first uh, Florida Marlin to win 20 games in 2005. 22 wins, seven complete games, and five shutouts. In, the second, uh, in his second all-star selection. And he could rake the ball. You know him from television because he's absolutely magnificent. The D-Train, Dontrell Willis, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Oh, God is good all the time. All the time. All the time. All the time. Welcome home. Thank you. I feel at home. This has been an awesome experience thus far. And uh, you know Bob. He's slickest in the game, so I'm just trying to keep up with you. But thank you for having me. I appreciate this. Oh, man, this is so special for us. We got to meet you early in your career, and we had created the Legacy Awards, and you were one of the first major leaguers to accept our invitation to come to Kansas City mm -hmm. and accept the Legacy Award. It was Rookie of the Year, your first year, which was our Larry Doby Larry Award. Doby. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And then later you won the Satchel Page mm -hmm. Award. And what does it mean to you when you walk through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum? Uh, um, pride and emotion. Um, if it's no them, there's no us. And so the responsibility. And so every photo I see of the great teams, you can tell they had a sense of pride. Oh, no doubt. And so I always played with that in my heart. You know, um, Dave Stewart was a hero of mine. You know, he doesn't like me talking about it because he doesn't like getting <laughs> emotional, but Stu saved my life, you know. And so I tell everybody I wanted to hit like Will Clark and, and pitch like Dave Stewart. And I, <laughs> and I got a chance to meet Will Clark, and I said, man, I heard you were a racist, and he just laughed and walked off. And I said, I'm still a big <laughs> fan of yours, but, you know. No, but um, yeah, that's a true story, actually. Ah. But, uh, but, but it's still, I'm still a big fan of his. But anyway. Um, yeah, ask Jeff Lennon. Yeah, exactly. Um, but again, um, seeing all these names, I mean, Doc Gooden, I mean, 
a cultural icon. I still have his throwback jersey. Oh, I spent $400 for that, so I'm going to need you to sign that, by the way. <laughs> um, but they're heroes and they're champions. And so um, I remember the first time I saw Dave Stewart, my mom took me to see him pitch against the Texas Rangers, and I knew right then and there when he walked by me, um, my mom pushed me to get his autograph, but I was so scared because he was so stoic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, but I knew then I, that's what I wanted to be as a Major League Baseball. So I owe a great gratitude to the Negro Leagues and the people that came before me. And so I always felt like I had a responsibility to go out there and perform at my best. Yeah. I was going to ask you about being from the East Bay, but we've covered a lot of it. I mean, you know, you're from the Bay Area. So Dave Stewart, the Oakland A's, were you, you were an A's fan, I presume. Absolutely. The Battle of the Bay is everything because oh, the A's yeah. whipped them. The A's whipped I know you're a Giants fan. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but the A's whipped them. But no, I mean, if you're a kid growing up in the Bay Area at that time, um, it was almost, it felt like uh, the Bay Area was on the world stage mm -hmm. and, and it impacted a lot of kids' lives and that's why you've seen the CeCe Zabathias of the world right. and so um, a lot of people from the Bay Area, we have our own type of swag, own type of energy, you know, we wear it on our sleeve and so the Ricky Hendersons with the collar pop and, 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 and the athleticism, the Jimmy Rollins of the world. And so we know we, we go out there and play hard, but it's a certain type of flair that we have. And we, we take a lot of pride being from the Bay Area. And so as an athlete, you always want your name to ring out. And so being from Alameda, California, I got my best friend here. You know, we were, were one of the few African-Americans that were always on that team. And so we wanted everybody to know that this was because of Alameda. We weren't soft. We were ready to play. And so our name started to ring out. And so, you know, I, I love being from the Bay. It's my home. Yeah, that's fantastic. Let's talk about your hitting for a little bit. <laughs> because one of the, uh, 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 the hallmarks of the Negro Leagues was, you know, it wasn't, now we have Shohei Otani, who's mm -hmm. an extraordinary player in, the, in, the, in the, the mode or the whatever of Babe Ruth, mm -hmm. in so much as he's a superb pitcher and a superb hitter. But Jose Mendez, Bullet Rogan, Don Newcomb, I mean, the Negro League, Double Duty Radcliffe. Double Duty we could Radcliffe. talk about nothing but. Hilton Smith, mm -hmm. Leon Day. Oh, Leon Day. Ray Brown, the list goes on and on of great two-way stars in the Negro Leagues. We mentioned Wilbur Bullet, Joe Rogan. Yeah who was a member of the 1924 Kansas City Monarch team that won the inaugural World Series. Shohei's real comparison is to bullet Joe Rogan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Rogan led the Negro Leagues in stolen bases when he was 38 years old. Rogan hit over 300 and would have been a perennial 20-game winner in the major leagues. And as I mentioned in the vernacular of the legendary Leroy Satchel Page. Mm -hmm. He was the onlyest pitcher he ever saw <laughs> that pitched and hit in the cleanup position. That was Bullet Joe Rogan. And, and you are a part of that legacy. I know you like to swing that bat. <laughs> um, it, it's because we never wanted to come off the field. You know, we were field rats. And so, you know, that's the common denominator of all those players, including Shoei Otani. And so, I never wanted to come off the field. My mom's here. She says the best punishment is don't, don't let them play outside. And so, you know, uh, uh. most parents know that inside. And so I never wanted to come off the field. I always wanted to be impactful. And I wanted to do anything I could to help the team win. And so um, I just love the game of baseball. Um, I'm still in baseball, you know, uh, commentating, hating on people for a living like <laughs> most uh, Americans. And, but I love the game and I love showing this athleticism. And so playing in the National League, I think it helped my game. I think my offense helped uh, 
my pitching kind of helped me ease into the ball game and, and what have you. And I, so I think the year that I won 20 games, I scored 19 times. Wow. And had 16 RBIs. So help help, helping myself. Help absolutely. And so I thought that was a very uh, big component for my uh, big time season. They always go to Babe Ruth for everything, but you're absolutely right. It really is. That's what I, the first thing when I saw Otani, I was, I thought Bullet Rogan. Yeah. Well, it was refreshing. And I'm so glad that Shohei Otani, who is this phenomenon, mm-hmm. yeah. is now the face of Major League Baseball. Yeah, isn't it great? Because as I got to share with some of the folks today, the Negro Leagues really were influential in helping bring the game, the kind of game that we right. play in this country, over to Japan in 1927. Folks, that's seven years before Babe Ruth and his All-Americans go to Japan. Now, they've been commonly credited with having introduced that brand of professional baseball to the Japanese, but it was not true. A team called the Philadelphia Royal Giants. And so to see Shohei Otani come and our dear friend, former Major League Japanese star Ichiro Suzuki, mm-hmm. who came to this museum on a couple of occasions, yeah. who sent flowers upon Buck O'Neill's death, who wrote one of the most significant checks that any major leaguer had written to the museum, a kid from Japan who embraced the history of the Negro Leagues, and now it gives us an opportunity to relate that connection because had it not been for that tour of 27 and a subsequent tour a few years later, they lit the flame that is now the fire for professional baseball in Japan. You know, it's important, and and dreams are beautiful, especially when they're positive. Um, I remember when I won my 19th game um, in New York, and I get to Washington, D.C., and you know, I get Chinese food and I'm pitching the next day, which I don't recommend that you eat Chinese food the night before you pitch. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm watching the football game and I get a call on the phone and it's Mudcat. And, you know, all of a sudden I'm hearing his voice and I'm just like, what is Mudcat calling me for? And he says, we're downstairs. And he says, we. And we ain't in France, so he ain't by himself. <laughs> so I go downstairs and it's him and Ferguson and Norris down there. And they're more excited to see me than I am of them. And so they talked about the responsibilities of being a black ace. Now, if you're not nervous before a star, you're definitely nervous now. And so, um, you know, talking to my teammates the next day, getting ready for a start in the Nationals, and my teammates, Latin, white, and black, understood the responsibility. Because at the time, the Marlins never had a 20-game winner. And so my white players said, we're going to score for you today. And so they score five runs in the first inning. Now I'm on the bench like, all right, that's enough. Let me go out and get the flow of the game, you know what I mean, and go out there and try to compete. But it meant something to them as much as it meant to me. Mm -hmm. And so when that final out came, oh, man, I cried like a baby, and I look up in the suite, and, and, you know, know, Mudcat, God rest his soul, he had a beautiful smile. Yes, he did. You know what I mean? And it was just transcending, and, and, and now I just was, I felt like I was immortal at that moment and I don't really talk like that but to see them in the press conference and see how joyful and, and Fergie said well you gotta do it six more times son you know what I mean and I said I don't know if I'm gonna be around that dang long you know what I mean but you know the responsibility of it you know, uh, you know I'll never I'll never uh, forget and so seeing all these names and, and my raggedy self up there but you know Vita hero uh, you know six time all star and Doc Gooden I mean a cultural icon and obviously Al Downing and, and so I'm, I'm incredibly, uh, I'm indebted to these men. Um, I'm very thankful. I'm indebted to my family. 
thank to my mother for yes, who put the ball in my mother. crib and my new told, best friend. Oh, she everybody's best friend. <laughs> if you haven't met Joyce Harris, you know, I mean, she's everybody's best friend. But I'm forever thankful to you and this this beautiful facility. And thank everybody for coming here, man, because the legacy's gonna live on to everybody. Yeah. No, you're pure, oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Greg. Go ahead, go ahead. I'll just, just say you're purely delightful, man. Thank and you. We love you on television as well. Yeah. <clears throat> Absolutely. And you know this is home for you. Thank you. We, we love you, and we're so proud of what you are doing, you know, what you did in the game, but what you're doing outside the game. And as I see these young people who came as guests of our friends over at the Players Alliance and their enthusiasm for seeing these guys, they didn't get to see you guys right. when you were performing but the respect and the admiration that they have, you're rubbing off on that next generation, man. Marcus Strowman and, and, and Tristan McKenzie, that first thing out their mouth is, I want to be a black ace. Yes. And I said, we got to work on your heroes, but I appreciate that. You know what <laughs> I mean? We got to work on your heroes, aim a little higher, but that's what it's about. And so it transcends money. It's, it's about, you know, planting that seed for the next generation like these men did. So God is good all the time, and I'm incredibly indebted. Well, man, we are thrilled that you, your mom, those lovely, beautiful girls. They don't look like me, girls. thank God. That's why I put a lot of tithes and offerings when I go to church. I slip. They don't look like me, so, yeah, I'm very thankful. And yeah. I know they are tremendously proud of their father, just as we are proud of you. Thank you. Congratulations and welcome into the Negro League Baseball Museum's Appreciate it. Hall thank you so much. of Games. Awesome. Thank you. Willis, y'all. On the last train, right? Uh, Bob gave me a black Yankees jacket today, and um, Dontrell, your mother has been trying to get it off of me all day, <laughs> and has threatened to actually come to LA to steal it from me. I just want you to know that our last Hall of Game inductee um, was nothing short of superb, and again, took not just baseball but I think America by storm. Um, he joined the Black Aces in 1985 when he had a 24 and four record with the New York Mets. But when he broke into the majors at 19, um, he was rookie of the year and led the league in strikeouts. Later on with the Yankees, of course, he pitched a no hitter. And in 1985, the Cy Young Award winner with 24 wins, 268 strikeouts and a one 0.53 ERA. Anyone who saw Doc Gooden saw absolute incandescent brilliance. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dwight Doc Gooden. Doc Gooden. I can't tell you how excited I am for you to come here to Kansas City. Because I know how important you were to my friend Buck O'Neill. He absolutely loved you, and he saw you early on in your career, and I know for you to be here, he's smiling right now uh, because you're home. Yes. You're home. And we can't thank you enough for being here, and we are so excited to induct you into the Hall of Games. So welcome to Kansas City. Welcome to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. I know this was your first visit. Yes. What was it like walking through that museum this morning? Oh, man. First of all, good evening to you guys. Thank you, everyone, for coming tonight. Um, thanks for having me, first of all. I appreciate it. And walking through the museum, as you mentioned, all I could think about was Buck. 
the conversation we had with Buck in the 90s when you and Buck would come to Shea Stadium, would sit down and just talk. So I love the history of the game, especially the history of the Negro League. Um, so coming to the museum with all the greats that's in here, to me, the real ball players, and had this honor you know, brought upon me, a definite dream come true. Uh, thought about my dad, of course, who taught me the game of baseball, but I get the opportunity to share this with my kids. Yes. That's the most important thing for me, um, what they can share with their kids, my grandkids and great-grandkids. But it's just a tremendous honor. It gave me a world of knowledge that I didn't know coming in here and just about continuing to pass that, uh, continuing to teach to the youth. The more knowledge I get about the Negro League, I can pass that message on to them as well. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. And I, and I wanted to know, I want you to know, your girlfriend, Angel, she gonna surprise you. Well, it ain't a surprise now because I'm about to spill the surprise. No. But she know you got this old Negro League jersey. <laughs> uh, and I remember that jersey, a hockey-style jersey yes. that has the patches on it. And, and Angel came over to me today and said, he got to get rid of that jersey. He didn't want that jersey. And I've seen you in pictures of that oh, jersey. Yeah. And it's a great jersey. Yeah. But we got another jersey for you tonight yeah. uh, that we're going to make sure you get before you leave here because she wanted to make sure you got rid of that old hockey-style jersey. <laughs> yeah. uh, but we're excited to give you that jersey. We're Thank thrilled you. that you're here. And I, I, I was just curious because, you know, in the, in the Negro Leagues, they had great nicknames. Great nickname. Matter of fact, if you didn't have a good nickname, you probably couldn't play. Uh, that's how it was. I mean, when your name is so iconic, Satchel Page, that when I say Leroy Page, people say, who? Yeah, because his name was Satchel, and that's what, that was it. Who tagged you with Doc? You know, it's amazing. I used to tell my teammates that I got the name from basketball, but it wasn't. You know, um, my dad's best friend was a doctor, and for some reason, when I was young, I used to like to go see the autopsies, which I wouldn't go today. But I used to like to go see the autopsies, and he used to tell my dad that I was going to be a doctor, not a baseball player. So he would come to all my little league games with my dad, and he would talk about, go ahead, doc, you got another patient, doc, operate on the doc. And so one day we had the local newspaper there doing a story about the game, and um, he wrote the whole thing, doc, you know. And so obviously my teammates started calling me Goody, which I didn't sound as good as doc. So I started telling him doc, and once I got drafted, you know, everybody that you know, plays sports, they get a nickname. So back home, I said they called me Doc, and once I got to the majors, they added a K. So a friend of my dad's, who was a doctor, gave me the name Doc. Wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. You know, amongst your uh, amazing accomplishments, I was at the 1984 All-Star Game in San Francisco at Candlestick Park, and um, Fernando Valenzuela struck out three in the fourth inning, and then you came on in the fifth inning and struck out three in a row. And that broke Carl Hubble's record, I guess it was from the... 34 All-Star Game, mm -hmm. where he struck out five in a row. And Carl Hubble was there, as I recall, and threw out the first pitch. Um, what was it like at that moment? That was so early in your career. Uh, and I remember seeing you and Strawberry and Tim Raines and Dale Murphy. It was just an exciting day. Everybody, so many great young players. Oh, it was very exciting for me. It was just the opposite of Stu. Like he said, uh, <laughs> Bob Gibson told him not to talk to anybody. But I was only a year and a half out of high school, so I wanted to meet everybody. Um, i never forget um, talking with Dolan Ryan, who was my childhood idol. And um, he said that every fifth day when he's not pitching, he looked forward to watching me pitch. That gave me a world of confidence going into the second half. But just being there amongst a lot of guys who myself and my nephew, um, Sheffield, will pretend to be in the backyard, you know, the, um, Andre Dawson, Mike Schmidt, all these guys, and now we're in the same clubhouse with these guys. So I was happy to get in the game, but even if I didn't, got in, the, if I didn't get in the game, I would have been happy just to share that moment to be there my first year in the major leagues. Oh, my God. You had one of the greatest curveballs this sport has ever seen. Who taught you? how to throw that curveball. 
You know, my dad, which one thing I regret before my dad passed away was the excellent way that he get his knowledge from. Because he taught myself as well. I keep mentioning Gary, who's my nephew. We grew up in the same house. My sister had him young, so he was like a brother to me. And about 10 years old, my dad would take us to the park. No ball, no glove, no bat, so it wasn't fun. You know, he teaches us about mechanics. He felt it was um, more important of how you throw opposed to what you threw. So he taught me the curveball at 10 years old. He had me doing a lot of moves where you guys probably saw the karate kid, like, like Duncho got the high leg kicks. So yeah. He would teach me the, the leg kick more for balance. But again, it was without the ball, without a glove, you know, without a bat, so it wasn't fun. And I would go home and tell my mom that dad is making us do all these different things. He don't know what he's talking about. But as I got older, <laughs> as I got older, it all started coming together on what the mechanics meant. So I knew if I didn't get, if I was trying to go, say, down and in to a hitter, but the ball's up and away, I knew point A, meaning my foot wasn't in tight with my shoulder. So I knew how to correct that at a very young, at a very young age. Joe, so how old were you learning the curveball? 10 years old. I mean, I wouldn't teach that because kids, the, the ligaments are still developing, mm -hmm. you know, the bones are still developing. But my dad felt like if you're throwing it a proper way, which today's game, they don't really teach mechanics no more. It's about velocity and spin rate. But he was big on mechanics. He felt like if you was throwing it the proper way, you could throw any pitch you wanted. Right, because right, that's really young to throw a curveball, isn't it? Yes. So most really people at it when they're... Oh, tell us about the 86 Mets, because that team was just galvanizing. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody uh, it captured everybody's imagination and made baseball... that. Uh, the playoffs, the World Series, the whole enchilada was just amazing. Yeah, 86 was a lot of fun. That was the one team we had that, um, we had a close team, very close team. You know, we was labeled as wild guys, crazy guys, which some of us was. I mean, I ain't gonna say no names, but, you know, it was just, <laughs> it was that era. It was the 80s. You know, we're in New York. We've been successful. But the only thing I regret that we didn't get credit for, that team had a lot of knowledge. I mean, we'll sit out the games when there's a lot of traffic in New York on a Sunday, just talk baseball, have a beer, just talk baseball. Um, but it was fun. I remember in 85, when they didn't have the wild card, it was just the two divisions. We won 98 games and had to go home. Yeah. So the next year, we got the spring training of 86. Normally you have the, in spring training, the first thing you have the general manager talk, the manager talks, the manager introduces staff, the training staff. But David Johnson was the only voice. He said, guys, we're here to win one thing, and that's the World Series, go get them. And we had guys that could have been playing every day, you know, Howard Johnson, Kevin Mitchell, Danny Heap, but everybody put the Eagles aside for one common goal, and that was to win the World Series. And the most fun that we had was, if we went on the road, say we came to um, Chicago or St. Louis, 25-man roster, guys checking the hotel, you call your wives or your girlfriends, then the, at least 23 of us meet back downstairs, we go eat together, and we go hang out together. Just a very close team. Wow. So you really, got, you really did all hang out together. Yes, very close. And think about it, like the team we had, probably the two guys that didn't really drink or do anything was Mookie and Gary. So who would have thought Gary would be the first guy we lost from that team? Yeah. 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 Now, we talked about this earlier today at the, after the tour this morning. You play for the Mets, and then you go over to the Bronx and play for the Yankees. What was that transition <laughs> like? That was definitely different. Um, being a Met in New York, you know, you hate the Yankees. Not exactly. literally, but, you know, you hate the Yankees. And I never saw myself playing with the Yankees. Um, I started 11 years with the Mets. They drafted me. Unfortunately, after 94 season, the Mets wanted to cut ties. Myself, I love New York. I want to stay in New York. Uh, Mr. Steinberg gave me an opportunity to stay in New York. I remember the first day of spring training, being in the bathroom in the mirror, looking at myself in the uniform, the Yankee uniform. I just couldn't put it together. Um, 
unfortunately, like the difference, people talk about the difference between the Mets and the Yankees. With the Mets, you know, you talk about being competitive, staying healthy, giving yourself a chance at the end. With the Yankees, is only one voice. That was George Steinbrenner. Win the Royal Series or the season of failure. And unfortunately that year, I started out 0-3, and they took me out of rotation. Torrey basically benched me, and when a pitcher gets benched, that means you're not getting in the game if you're up 10 or you're down 10. Unfortunately, David Cohen got the aneurysm in his mm -hmm. arm, mm -hmm. and Steinbrenner was the only guy that said, put Gooden back in the rotation. Put me back in the rotation, and my fourth start back in the rotation turned out to be the no-hitter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what do you remember about that no-hitter? Oh, man, that no-hitter, um, I go through the whole thing. Um, the day that I pitched the no-hitter, the guys don't know the story, I was actually supposed to go home to build my father, who was having open-heart surgery the next day. He had been on dialysis for 15 years, and the doctor said his chance is not that good, but he had to have the surgery. And I had my ticket to fly home to build my dad, and that day, I felt like he would want me to pitch. All I can think about was when I was young, being at the park, and talking to my dad about responsibilities, work comes first, family, so on. So I told Joe Torrey I'm, I was going to pitch, who was the manager that year. He said, no, go be with your dad. I said, no, I'm going to pitch. The next call was to my mom, which that didn't go as smoothly. Um, <laughs> she, she was like, you have to come home. Your dad is expecting you. You have to be here for support. Everybody's going to be here. You have no choice. You have to be home. So I actually hung up on my mom, something that you, you know, obviously don't do. I felt bad about it, but I was feeling guilty about not going home. Um, that whole day before you know, I went to the ballpark, it was like a dark cloud on my head. Am I making the, making the right decision? Am I going to see my dad again? Should I go home? Should I not go home? Um, I get to the ballpark. Mel Stoudemire was my pitching coach, who was my pitching coach with the Mets as well. We went in the back of the training room. We talked for a while. He made sure I was okay. And the first three innings of that game, I was standing in the walkway between the clubhouse and the dugout, wondering if I made the right decision. My dad's going to be okay. Not until the sixth inning, I was looking at the scoreboard to see who Seattle had come up to hit at that time. You see no runs, no hits, no errors. Heart slip beating a little faster. The anxiety kicks in. I was able to put my dad's situation aside to finish the game and end up pitching a no-hitter. And I remember when the team is carrying off the field, I'm thinking about my dad's situation. Is he going to pull it through? The year before, you know, I was suspended from baseball. Um, early in the season, I was put on the bench. Well, I, I was thinking about um, um, I was thinking about actually releasing me or sending me down to the minors. Um, so when the game was over, I took a ball from the game. The next day I flew home to build my dad. He had, then had the surgery. He was on life support at the time. And they say he watched the game. He ended up passing away, but the last game he saw me pitch was a no-hitter. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, it's... These stories just seem to only happen in our sport, baseball. There's a reason that baseball is the most romanticized sport of them all. You know, I tell these stories almost every single day. I tell the story of a young Roberto Clemente who admired the, the legendary Negro League star Monty Irvin. And when Monty goes over to Puerto Rico, a young Roberto Clemente used to carry his uniform to the ballpark. Roberto Clemente Jr. told me the story. His dad would carry Monty Irvin's uniform to the ballpark, and if he carried the player's uniform to the ballpark, he would let you in the game for free. And that Monty Irvin gave his dad his first real baseball glove. And so as you all know the story of Roberto Clemente, he dies taking supplies to Nicaragua after a horrific earthquake. 
And when Roberto Clemente passes away, they waive the five-year rule for him to be considered for induction into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Who does he go into the Hall of Fame with? Monty Irvin. Yeah. And these stories just happen all the time in our sport, more so than any of the other sports. And I'm fans of all of them, but something really magical about baseball and the fact that your father got to see that no-hitter of yours. And maybe you had a little angel there right there on your shoulders when you were getting it done there, throwing that no-hitter. Yes, most definitely, because it wasn't one of the, I've had better stuff when I pitch. It was just that game, I made the pitches when I had to. And it definitely was a higher power there, no, no doubt about it, because, you know, when I was with the Mets, that's when I was in my glory days. Yeah. Yankees, you know, it was just reestablishing yourself, learning how to be more of a complete pitcher, depending on location, changing speed. So the pitching no-hitter at that time, especially to me, Seattle had one of the best-hitting teams in baseball in oh, 96. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, Definitely. Yeah, that lineup was loaded. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, sir. So for that to happen in the timing of it was meant yeah. everything, yes. That's a beautiful story, man, and it has been a beautiful day hanging out with you, your family, all of those who we've inducted into our Hall of Game. But Doc Gooden, on behalf of all of us here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and in memory of my dear friend, the late, great Buck O'Neill, who I know is in that great somewhere, somewhere, smiling down, and I know he would want to congratulate you on being inducted into the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum's Hall of Game. Y'all give it up for the doc, Dr. Thank K, you. the legendary Dwight Gooden. I think Jim Mudcat Grant would be very happy. I know, I know Mudcat is happy. Uh, he loved every one of these guys that we have paid honor to here tonight. Uh, yeah, he's somewhere in that great somewhere, also smiling down. Job well done. Yeah, isn't he just? Uh, let's hear it one more time for everyone that we seem tonight and bring him back on the stage. John Chell Willis, Dave Stewart, Mike Norris, Dwight Gooden. Did I forget anyone? Vida Blue, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, tremendous class. We couldn't be more prouder. I want you all to do me a favor. Make sure you check out the Black Aces exhibit. I know we have the cocktail reception in there tonight for some of you. You probably didn't get a chance to walk around and see the exhibition. Learn about the history of the Black and Hispanic pitcher that really built that bridge for these Black Aces that we recognize tonight and the other Black Aces. My dear friend, the late, great J.R. Richard. Fergie Jenkins, who we've inducted into the Hall of Game. We didn't get the chance to do that for Bob Gibson and, of course, those who passed on even before the great Bob Gibson. But you are one more round of applause for Mr. Al Downing, Dontrell Willis, Derek Blue on behalf of his family, Vita Blue, Mike Norris, and Dwight Gooden, our 2023 class of inductees into the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum's Hall of Game. 
I want to thank all of you for a remarkable season of Black Diamonds. I, I, I can't even begin to thank everyone for their continued support. We need that support. And I hope you will join us in this next phase of growth for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum as we build Buck O'Neill a brand new house, a new 30,000 square foot standalone Negro Leagues Baseball Museum anchored right next to the old Paseo YMCA, the birthplace of the Negro Leagues, where it all began, creating what I call the nation's first ever Negro Leagues baseball campus as the gateway into historic 18th and Vine. If you're so inclined to join us in supporting the next phase of growth for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, please visit nlbm.com, go to the donation tab, and select Pitch for the Future. That is the name of the campaign. That is the next phase of growth for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. We appreciate your support, and we need your support. Black Diamonds is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, with additional voiceovers provided by Donnie or Samuels. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts. SiriusXM Podcasts.